it started as a normal day. What if the truth about the greatest tragedy of your life was kept secret from you? A huge explosion occurred. This is the story of a scandal deliberately buried in the chaos of the Iraq war. What, what really just happened? Listen to NPR's Embedded podcast in its latest series, Taking Cover. My name is Jane Roper, and I'm the author of The Society of Shame. In Jane Roper's new novel, The Society of Shame, she dives into the complexity of cancel culture, internet scandals, and the shared experience of shame. The book follows Kathleen, a mother and wife of a political candidate who finds herself suddenly in the spotlight after a photo emerges of Kathleen caught in an embarrassing situation. I recently spoke with Jane Roper about the impact of internet movements, mother-daughter relationships, and more. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. So talk to me about the Society of Shame, both, you know, the book and perhaps the actual society. Can you give us a description that might help me to know what we're spoiling, I suppose? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I don't think it'll spoil anything. But the Society of Shame is about a 47-year-old wife and mother named Kathleen Held. And she comes home early from a trip one night and discovers her politician husband on the lawn in his underwear, um, the garage on fire, and her husband's mistress passed out nearby. And a bystander at the scene snaps a photo of this uh, that quickly goes viral. And in the photo, you can see that Kathleen has a big period stain on the back of her pants. (laughs) Um, So much to her chagrin, she is quickly catapulted to fame and becomes the figurehead for a menstrual justice movement called Yes, We Bleed. So the Society of Shame is actually a little support group that she stumbles into by stealing an invitation meant for her husband, where it's folks who have been caught up in their own scandals and online shaming and humiliation meet together to rehab their lives and their images. And the society is led by a disgraced a romance author who takes great joy in helping people out after she was disgraced herself. You know, in the beginning, Kathleen would say the word just a lot. And it reminded me of of Benjamin Dreyer's rules for words you should never use because just was one of them. But just means small, unimportant, or ineffective, which is exactly how she felt, isn't it? Talk to me about Kathleen before this happened. Yeah, absolutely. Just is one of those little undermining (laughs) words that people people use right up there with, I'm sorry, I was just going to say. So Kathleen is she used to be an aspiring writer, but sort of put that aside. She couldn't handle the rejection. Uh, She settles into a career as a copy editor or production editor in publishing. She becomes a mom, but she has really sublimated her own desires and her own passions to support her husband, who is this very up-and-coming, charismatic politician. She has really just tamped down, here I go saying just, she has (laughs) tamped down who she is. She refers to herself as as wallpaper more than once. So when she is thrust into the limelight for this embarrassing thing, it's her worst nightmare. I mean, this is the worst possible thing that can happen to her to be suddenly in the spotlight, which is where she does not want to be. So she has to figure out how to navigate that and uh, decide whether she wants to continue to 
be in the background or kind of step into that spotlight willingly and make the most of it. Well, and she does step into it because Kathleen becomes Cat. You know, the image changes a bit. And Cat had a different reason for being in the Society of Shame. You know, yes, she pilfered an invitation meant for her husband. So as a result, she was the only member of the society who had not done something shameful, but instead because of what happened to her. And there was this quote from the book, but there was one key thing they shared. Like them, Kathleen had been exposed thanks to the unchecked power of the Internet and people's appetite for scandal. So I want to talk about a couple of things here. First, talk to me about what the Internet has done, good or bad, for movements. Yeah, I mean, the Internet has, on the good side, been fantastic and incredibly powerful for for movements. You know, whether you're talking about the Arab Spring, you're talking about uh, Me Too, you're talking about Black Lives Matter. It has this power to amplify and accelerate things in an incredible way. It also, because it moves so fast, it often takes the the subtlety and the nuance out of movements, out of uh, situations like those I talk about in the book where people have been shamed or called out online. I think it's equally, (laughs) it's a double-edged sword for sure. One of the things I tried to uh, shine a light on with regard to movements in the book is the way they can... um, quickly devolve into infighting, uh, which I think is is problematic. People who are on the same side start fighting with each other on who is more devoted or who is more pure in their, in their activism. And also the way they can sometimes become a little bit silly, right? When people get caught up in where the hashtag or the memes or the become a substitute for, for real activism, people start to feel like, oh, if I retweet this, I'm I'm really I'm making a difference and maybe you're making a tiny difference but the question is what are you what are you really doing are you doing more of the work that actual movements take to be truly effective I think you know people will put the little frames around their avatars and stuff and I think there is rightly some cynicism around that that uh yeah okay that's a start but you need to take it a step further, so, which some people in the book do with the yes, ble- yes, we bleed movement. Some people really, what you know, really devote themselves to it, and others get caught up in wearing fun little hats and posting selfies of themselves. You also addressed the short attention span of the collective. You know, the quick pivot to something else, and that something else wasn't always someone else because as quickly as the mob hopped on the bandwagon in support of Kathleen Cat, whatever we want to call her, they just as quickly pivoted to crucify her. Talk to me about that short attention span of the collective. Yeah. I mean, people can so quickly go from, from heroes to villains. And uh, that was something I really played around a lot with in the book, Uh, where Kathleen first leans into this idea that, oh, everybody loves me and I'm this heroine and I'm going to just embrace that and be the spokesperson, be the the patron saint of wronged middle-aged wives and menstruation. And, um, but, you know, as always happens, once you're in the public eye, the scrutiny just becomes intense. Everyone's looking at you and waiting for, well, it feels sometimes like people are waiting with bated breath for you to make a misstep. And when that happens, all of a sudden, oh, this hero, this person we put up on a pedestal, oh my God, it turns out they're human and they did this other thing. So there are some sins that come to light of Kathleen's, some very minor and trivial. 
and a couple things that are a little more serious. And she, she, you know, she loses her way a bit and starts trying to always stay on top, always be loved, always get everything right, which I don't know when it comes to fame and when it comes to the internet are kind of impossible because people are just waiting, waiting to pounce on, on any little flaw that they see. Now, you've been smiling throughout this entire interview, and there is a, <laughs> there's a light tone to the book a little bit, but yeah. you also tackle many serious topics throughout the book. And the main one that you tackled and you've mentioned is one that Kathleen was dealing with, which was menstruation. You know, for years, this topic has been taboo. It's even been referred to as the curse. Why right. did you choose to focus on periods? I may still smile while I'm talking about this, but <laughs> actually, no, but it, this is more serious. When I was trying to figure out, uh, I, I knew that I wanted the book to be about a moment of, of great humiliation. And I think for a lot of women, and then especially for women of a certain age, um, periods are just this huge source of, you know, the, the last thing anyone wants is to have a period accident and, and have that be seen in public because of this taboo, because it's seen as something that's gross or, or not unnatural, but, you know, there's a lot of shame tied up in it. And in some places in the world, there's shame with real world terrible consequences, like in some countries where girls aren't allowed to go to school when they have their periods, places where women are even put in isolation huts. And so I wanted to examine that, examine the shame around periods, why that exists, and make it something that could be reclaimed by Kathleen, reclaimed by other women and girls. And this is happening in the real world, of course. There's a huge amount of activism happening now around periods and around destigmatization of periods, around period poverty and making sure that more people have access to menstrual products. So it's very, it's very relevant. And I didn't realize it's gotten much more relevant since I started writing the book. That's something that kind of helped kept happening again and again, I would write something and then it would happen. <laughs> but, you know, recently there's been this crazy legislation proposed in Florida saying that girls can't, you know, they can't teach about menstruation before sixth grade, which is kind of bonkers given that girls get their periods as young as fourth grade. So you can imagine this, you know, some someone gets their period in class and hasn't had the chance to have a teacher talk with them about it. So there's definitely a much overdue fight around this, around this topic. So I hope by writing about it, I'm in a way maybe helping a little. I know I've heard from some early readers, like they had to get over their own discomfort, their own sort of cringiness around it. And I did too. I mean, I certainly, I'm not nearly as open about periods as my 16 year olds are. <laughs> Two menstruating teenagers in the house and uh, they're far more candid about it than I ever was at their age. I was going to ask if you thought it was a generational thing because, you know, my my girls, they amaze me. They're in their mid-20s, but they amaze me how they would have accidents at school and it wouldn't even phase them. They weren't embarrassed at all about this. And, and you know, they also won't let anybody catcall them. <laughs> They'll like turn around and say, oh, no, no, no. So I guess maybe that brings me to this question about Kathleen and her daughter, Aggie. Talk to me about their relationship and how it evolved through this time. Yeah, so Aggie is 12 years old. She's very earnest. She's very sincere and, and dedicated to causes. She's a young activist herself. 
And Kathleen really projects some of her own insecurities onto Aggie. She doesn't want Aggie to get teased by her peers for being sort of a little nerdy and a little different. And so when Aggie starts to want to get involved with the Yes, We Bleed movement, Kathleen is sort of terrified for her and thinks, oh, you don't want to do that. You you don't want to set yourself up to be singled out by your peers. Meanwhile, her father thinks it's going to, you know, dive bomb his campaign and doesn't want her getting involved. But Kathleen really learns from Aggie to be brave and and stand up more for what she believes in. Uh, There's certainly tension between them then as Kathleen becomes cat and then, you know, loses touch a little bit with with who she is and and what her priorities should be. But when I first started writing the book, the mother-daughter story wasn't as big a part of it. But as I went on and I realized it, provided a heart for the book. And also I liked the way Aggie became kind of a, a mirror to Kathleen where she could see what real activism looks like and also feel grounded, you know, how Aggie really grounds her in a way. And I think that's important, but yes, I mean, to your earlier point about the generational thing, absolutely. I think things are changing a lot. And I don't know if that's uniform across all demographics and, you know, socioeconomic brackets. Certainly, I think cultural background, religion, all these things have a lot to do with it. But there certainly is a segment of young girls that are are much less uh, embarrassed about it. And Aggie, the character of Aggie and her and her buddies, I really had fun writing about her other seventh grade pals exemplify that. You mentioned that their relationship wasn't you didn't plan for that when you started writing the book. Did did anything else surprise you as you were writing? Oh, that's a good question. That's a question I like to write <laughs> other writers when I talk to them. Well, let's see. I think, I mean, the Aggie part was definitely a surprise. I went down a lot of kooky roads in terms of the complications along the way that, that Kathleen encounters. I don't know that I expected that quite so much. I also, I... I mean, that's just sort of, I don't know, basic plot stuff, little tendrils that I found along the way that surprised me. And and I guess the other thing is, I don't know that I expected her to, to go quite as far off course as she ends up going. I ended up just, I think, raising the stakes a little more than I expected to, because I felt I had to to make it more interesting and make it more, I I have a bad habit of making, sometimes my fiction is too quiet. So I tried to just pump up the volume more than I was used to. I think you did because like the cancel culture and everything that Kat was going through this book just felt like a brand muffin. The more you chew, the bigger it gets. And I found myself getting anxious on Kat's behalf just because of (laughs) everything that was happening to her and then choices she was making. So if you could give Kat advice, what would it be? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Also, I, I guess I would tell her, remember that the internet is not the whole world. It may feel like the whole world, but it's really, people are not going around thinking about you all the time. There's a whole world outside of what's happening on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned into that. Stay tuned into the real people who care about you, that you care about they're much more reality than whatever some troll on Twitter is saying about you, some complete stranger. I try to give myself that advice too, because I know there are times when, you know, if I post something online and somebody shoots back a nasty comment, it, I'll feel horrible for hours or or more. And I have to kind of bonk myself in the head and be like, this is not 
like you've got friends, you've got family who love you, who know you more than beyond just like a tweet. Keep some perspective here. So <laughs> that would be my advice. We've talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? You know, I guess on the topic of, you know, so-called cancel culture that you touched on and that we've talked about, I suppose what I what I wanted to do with this book was not so much say yay or nay on it. I think sometimes there, you know, because our country is so polarized, there's this sort of cancel culture is good, cancel culture is bad. I mean, the word itself, cancel culture, I think it's makes it sound like it's some great moral panic that this horrible thing is happening. People are being called out for doing crappy things, you know, but I wanted to show some of the extremes of that. And I don't know, get people thinking and talking about it even, and just acknowledging that it's not a simple, simple thing, right? People screw up and they're often rightly called on it, but sometimes they get flattened into, you know, monsters uh, just for, for doing something that may be forgivable or or may not be, but there's so little room for nuance. So I was glad that in the book, I was able to shine a little more light on some of the nuance of things and, you know, just the importance of us all kind of slowing down and when we're online and not just taking knee-jerk reactions to what we see around us. Well, the book is The Society of Shame. Jane Roper, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Jane Roper, author of the book, The Society of Shame, which was published by Anchor. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.